0: Welcome to a new episode of FORWARD, a podcast where we meet researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. I'm your host, Alison Innes. Before COVID-19 took over our news headlines, Canadians were worried about other issues. There were bushfires in Australia, impeachment in the United States, and royals leaving the United Kingdom. Here in Canada, one of the growing issues making headlines were the spreading demonstrations in support of the Wet'suwet'en protest against coastal gas link pipeline in BC. At the time, Brock's Centre for Canadian Studies was hosting a researcher in Indigenous Activism as part of the International Fulbright Scholars Program. Dr. Jason Black from the University of North Carolina was at Brock to work on research for his new book project. I spoke with Jason in February when the Kansas City Chiefs had just won the Super Bowl and the COVID-19 pandemic crisis had not yet disrupted the school year. At the end of our conversation, we'll have an update from Jason on how the pandemic situation is impacting Indigenous activists. Joining me in the studio today is Dr. Jason Black, the 2020 Fulbright Research Chair in Transnational Studies with the Centre for Canadian Studies at Brock. Dr. Black is visiting us from the Department of Communication Studies at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where he is a professor and the chairperson. He holds a PhD in Rhetorical Studies from the University of Maryland and has researched and published extensively on rhetoric and discourse around LGBTQ and Indigenous activist movements. His most recent publications include Mascot Nation, the Controversy over Native American Representations in Sports, co-authored with Andrew Billings, and Decolonizing Native American Rhetoric, Communicating Self-Determination. While at Brock, he is teaching Canadian Studies course 3V92, Social Activism and Culture in Canada and the the United States. So welcome.
1: Thank you very much, Alison. I appreciate being on.
0: So with so many issues in the news these days and uh, so many seemingly more important things going on, why do Indigenous mascots matter? Why is it worth digging into this, educating, pushing back? Right.
1: Right. It's, um, it's a fair question, and it's certainly a ubiquitous question. It's one I get quite a bit you know. in the face of things, at least in the United States, um, issues such as increase in diabetes and public health and drug and alcohol abuse, which often these are stereotypes of indigenous folks in the U.S. and on reservations, I'll call them reserves here, um, and in the face of things like the Bureau of Indian Affairs not returning money or the U.S. government as a whole not fulfilling treaties, what is this mascot thing about and why does it matter? I think it matters for a number of reasons. Everything that I just mentioned, which are governmental, historical, and material problems that we're gra- and health problems we're grappling with, are implicated or woven through the mascot itself, right? So public health and personal health, the internalization on the part of indigenous folks when they see this imagery and what that does for self-esteem and what that does for self-worth, that's a public health problem. That's a public health complication. That connects with depression. That connects with suicide, suicidal ideation, drug abuse, alcohol abuse. That connects with the, in those ways. And on the other side of it, those stereotypes that are attached to mascots allow non-Indigenous folks to continue to play in the stereotypes, which just further complicates the way that Indigenous folks may see themselves, not just personally, but as a part of a larger public, whether it's the U.S. or Canada. So there's a public health part of it as well. Mascots also, when... Um, When folks see the mascot as representing an almost eclipsing indigenous identity, for instance, in Florida or in the United States, when one can't think of Chief Osceola or the Seminoles in any form except the gross caricature of Chief Osceola on the field atop his horse, beginning of a football game, throwing a flaming spear in a a field while people do a tomahawk chop to a song called Massacre. That's a lot to
0: unpack. (laughs) It's a
1: lot to unpack, and... You know, when that's what people see or understand of the Seminole Nation, then we've got a real difficulty of what happens when reform is on the table. What happens when policies need to be changed and all people think about is this is playful. Mm-hmm. Native Americans disappeared, right? Like in the 1890s after Wounded Knee and after reservation systems were, were you know, firmly in place. Uh, so we can play around with this. So why the heck would we vote to pay money or or repatriate land or, or something like that. So what I'm basically saying is that stereotypes through the mascot make, make this fun, make this a joke so that when it comes time for real material change, a larger public is less likely to engage in reform. And honestly, everything is connected, right? Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to colonization, especially when it comes to a history of coloniality. Everything is connected, certainly in Western culture, even more so in Eastern culture, where the idea of holism is so firm. But the circle in indigenous communities itself, right? If we respect indigenous voice, we understand perhaps their ontology, their way of being, their life ways where everything is connected. Mascots are connected to larger historical difficulties, are connected to contemporary material problems on reserves and on reservations. It's connected with racism, anti-Indianism in the U.S. and in Canada. And at the end of the day, we can handle multiple things as human beings. We can handle multiple issues. I'm watching the debates as we get closer to the presidential election in the U.S. There are at least eight top issues ranging from healthcare all the way to border walls and immigration reform and all of the in-betweens. If we're able to handle large and think through large issues altogether, surely we can manage multiple parts of a larger problem of coloniality. And what I think about is if the whole goal of our community is to engage in a more perfect union in the US or more or a more solid confederation in Canada or what have you, Uh, Isn't it important to ensure that that's a responsible public and that's a responsible Mm -hmm. citizenry? So that's how I how I connect it. Everything is is interlaced in a way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: There seems to be this really interesting tension then between the aspects of indigenous life that nineteenth century colonial, in particular, and and continuing since, has sought to destroy, being adopted as these rituals and these fan. Mm Uh, motifs and that and right. and that kind of thing. Like, where does that come from? Like, why? I don't know. It's it's just an observation and I, and, I, and I'm just wondering if there's if there's kind of more yeah more to that.
1: so so more to the way that fans engage in, in yeah. playing through their mascot yeah. and forming their identity. I mean this is a, it's a beautiful question honestly and it's sociological and it's ideological, right? <laughs> Basically the way that I come at this and the way that a number of people do is that really our identities as groups whether it's individual groups or national groups or identity-based groups based in gender, race, ethnicity, sexualities, etc, religions Especially religion. We know each other through symbol making. We know each other through language. What does it mean to be an American? Well, it's a complicated question. But most likely it's going to be things like: I believe in freedom and democracy and liberty, right? I believe in a revolutionary spirit. I respect the flag and everything that it represents and I celebrate the 4th of July and, right, you sort of, these are all symbols. These are all discourses that come together. There's an historian named Benedict Anderson who talked about imagined communities and the essential point of of his work is countries and groups and identities don't grow from the ground or fall from trees. It's all rhetorical. We craft our identities. How does this connect to, to team spirit, if you will? Well teams are communities. And so to me, sports is, sports doesn't make community. Sport fandom is community. Community isn't built on top of a team. The team is the community itself and it's fandom is the community itself. And so how do people get together and share that community and share their joint identities and then take the joint identities away to their individual lives? Well, ritual the same rhetoric I just talked about. Yeah. Key terms, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? And that could be your cheer that you do at the stadium. Or I am, I respect the flag and all that it represents. Well, I respect the team colors and the mascot and all it represents, right? So so, the,
0: so then when you're a Kansas City Chiefs fan, you're wearing the headdress, you're wearing the jersey, you're putting on the face paint to say I belong to this
1: Community, correct. This
0: fan community,
1: absolutely, absolutely. Now, you know, fans fans dress up and assume their rituals, right? At schools and in professional teams that aren't indigenous in scope or indigenous in sort of um, character, Um, the question becomes with building fan identity around indigenous Mm -hmm. symbol making and names and visuals, and then the performances themselves. Is are there any other cultural groups? living with a colonial past that are fodder for mascoting. I mean, can you imagine in the United States or anywhere African-American mascots, white people or at least non-black folk, non-black POC folk even wearing blackface, right? Mm -hmm. As they go to the New York African-Americans football game that has a caricatured African-American man on a helmet. right? The question becomes why? Why is it that, that, that we don't have East Asian or South Asian mascots? We don't have, um, as I mentioned, African American mascots. We don't have Jewish mascots, right? And the answer is multifold. It's multifold and very complicated, but essentially there, it's the idea in the West that we can, we can wear Indianness because they've always been seen as other, savage, uncivilized, defeated in war
2: mm-hmm. in
1: Canada and the United States. And once on reservations and reserves safely tucked away that they then become something that you can you can play with think about in the US historically the Boston Tea Party which was one of the first really big revolutionary moments of resistance where the tax on tea was so incredible that a bunch of ragtag American colonists decided to throw tea in the harbor as a protest to the crown under the dead of night they hop aboard a ship And throw the tea over. But oftentimes what's not reported is they dressed as natives. They dressed as as natives. And you fast forward through and you look at the Wild West shows that happen at the end of the Indian Wars. You look at the Boy Scouts of America and the fact that you're a part of a tribe. Well, now it's a den, but it used to be a tribe. And you get the golden arrow or the silver arrow. And the ultimate ascension you have in the Boy Scouts is Eagle Scout. Eagle being, of course, a religious symbol of indigeneity in North America, right? If not beyond. So we have these. And then mascotting culture pops up. Advertising culture pops up. Land O'Lakes Butter. men chewing tobacco. Uh, Indian motorcycles, etc. Hollywood depictions of nativeness as well. Oftentimes played by non-Indigenous people. I mean, Sal Minio, an Italian-American actor in the 50s, right? In early 60s, I believe. He plays... You know, a chief in a, in, a, in a Disney movie. Well, that's not a surprise. And so, if you know Peter Pan or any other Disney movie that brokers an indigeneity, so they've always. So this uh, this trend has been around, and so people don't think. Oftentimes, they don't think twice about it. They they just engage in that play, and they call it play. It's just a game. It's just sports. It's just on any given Sunday. Well, for you. what about folks who wear those symbols and wear that identity and the hot breath of history breathes down their neck every day of their lives they can't leave the cleveland baseball stadium and become a white person who's who's easily and safely in in a privileged way folded back in they have to live with the stereotypes of savagery and of bellicosity of war and violence that non indigenous folks broker in and so that's it's very it's very very complex.
0: As we have, a, as a culture, and certainly within the university as well, have begun to engage and grapple with these issues of truth and reconciliation. One one word that comes up a lot, and it's come up in um, in in your work as well, is the idea of decolonization. So it's a term we hear a lot, but I'm not sure if it's one that we ever really hear explained out for us.
1: Right, right.
0: So. What do we mean with this idea of decolonization?
1: Sure, it's a complicated term, and it's complicated in a number of different ways. I mean, there are intellectual, there are academic definitions, which, um, which a lot of us write about. Academic definitions are always contested, and they're contested because they're also public definitions. And there are multitudes of publics who engage in something like a policy or a practice of decolonization. Feeds back into the scholarship, and so there are kind of debates about what it means. For me, if I were describing this as I do to my students, and, and they give me a Mobius strip back <laughs> feedback loop, the way I describe it is that decolonization is an antidote to colonization. And so I don't, I hate to have to start with colonization, but we kind of have to get a sense for what decolonization is responding to. And colonization is the historical and contemporary control of land, labor, bodies, cultures, and symbolism of typically marginalized people. Um, In a colonial setting over time, right? And so colonization are the acts themselves is how I sort of frame this. So colonization are the acts. The more insidious part is coloniality because that's more of an ideology. It's a superstructure or moving sidewalk that allows colonization as acts to move forward. And so oftentimes, at least in the States, people will say, well, you know, Native Americans run reservations and they have casinos and tax breaks and they can sell cigarettes, or, you know, a buck a pack or whatever it is. Racism is over, right? Anti-Indianism in the United States is over. Well, that's not necessarily the case because coloniality is still pulled through. Um, not only are acts taking place, but the overall um, feeling and philosophy and ideology of of coloniality is going on. And then decolonization and decoloniality is the antidote. Decolonization are are material acts and symbolic acts that are taken to dismantle the logics of coloniality, to recenter indigenous communities and indigenous voice in the process, if not first before anything else, destroying white privilege, questioning white fragility, in the process of these centuries long colonial relationships creating material changes, educational changes, and uh, in any form possible. That's uh, that's decolonization. Decoloniality is the overall way of knowing and being Decolonial—it's the antidote to coloniality. It's the philosophy. It's the ideology that's long-standing, and so acts are built on top of the ideology and philosophy. Sort of like in the United States, the Black Power movement. You have Malcolm X, whose documentary right now is out. I don't—it's actually out because I was watching it on Canadian <laughs> Netflix last night. Um, you know, Malcolm X was the prophet and architect of what we know as Black nationalism in the U.S. Starting in the '60s, the Black Power movement were the folks who acted, right? Mm-hmm. So he, he created the philosophy and ideology or supported that, punctuated that. They create, you know, worked through the acts of it, the movement. I kind of see decolonization and decoloniality in those ways.
0: As we're recording this, there's the developing story around the Wet'suwet'en uh, and the pipeline protests. Right. What's your perspective on that from as, an, as a non-Canadian, but somebody who is uh, trained in these kinds of issues? Yeah,
1: it's, um, it's interesting because on the one hand, you wanna say this is unfortunate that we're still working through issues regarding environmental justice and indigenous nations, especially in a country like Canada, who has this public imaginary and a reputation of being so incredibly woke, so incredibly progressive. And so on the one hand, there's sort of the, the disappointment and there's some shame attached to the fact that a pipeline is still being built after decades of reform, of course, and then reform turn back and inactivism. On the other hand, it's enlivening to see people getting together in the same way that folks in the United States did over the No Dapple Dakota Access Pipeline protest back in 2016 and 17 did, yeah. people getting together in a collective to not just fight back against a top-down power, whether it's a capitalist power or a governmental power. That's that's a reaction. If we framed it that way, activists are just reacting. But building community is what's really going on in the midst of things like pro- social protest, right, and movement. And so I'm, I'm looking at this as, wow, this is really eye-opening being in Canada and seeing that the same types of issues are going on across borders, which reminds you that borders are human-made. Mm-hmm. They're rhetorical. There are lines drawn on a map after warfare against indigenous folks and other European powers, right? So it's eye-opening in that way, and it's also eye-opening and heartening to see people get together. And listen, so the, the pipeline issue and the violence against protesters is happening all the way west. Uh, I mean, almost as far west as you can get, I think. Yes. Uh, and yet, what we're seeing this week is the disruption of the VIA train line between Toronto, the largest city, right? Um, kind of the, the, I hate to compare it to the United States, but kind of the New York of, of Canada, right? Like the epicenter of industry, epicenter of banking, epicenter, right? all the way through to Ottawa, which is the epicenter of the government, and to Montreal, which is the epicenter of, you know, Franco-Canadian culture and history. And so, you know, there's a disruption of the line all the way in the east. And I sort of pause to call it a disruption because, um, yes, a train line is being impeded as protesters in the east stand in solidarity, indigenous and non-indigenous folks alike stand in solidarity with brothers and sisters and two-spirit folks across the expanse of five times, six time zones, right? Um, well, four, but okay. But it's not a disruption. It's it's community activism more than that. So I, it's hard to call it a disruption, but it's heartening to see that people are standing in solidarity, not just allyship. Allyship is a bumper sticker, right? Mm-hmm. T-shirt. It's accompliceship. People putting their bodies on the line, reputations on the line, uh, lives on the line, economics on the line, family on the line. And so it's been really interesting to see that unfold as I'm here. I mean, this has happened in the past few weeks.
0: Well, I could continue this conversation. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I wish we could. And continue our sweet tea uh, drinking Yes, here. thank you for bringing um, a little bit of home to the table
0: here. I appreciate it. <laughs> you're very welcome. It. This is great. Thank you so much for joining us today. And um, we may have to check check back in with you Um depending on
1: how the news cycle goes. That that sounds fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. And I mean that in terms of the podcast and our conversation here, but also uh, as a university culture here um as a community really appreciate being here and as i work on more canadian indigenous mascot cases i would be happy to share what i'm learning for instance from edmonton cfl team debate and from the mcgill case and from some local cases in ontario so um i am always happy to come back yes
0: well let us know when the next book comes out oh i will I'm going to hit record and I'm going to ask you, it has been a long, the world is a very different place from, from what it was when we spoke way back in February. So I was wondering if you had any insights that you wanted to share about what's happening with indigenous activism uh, now during this pandemic.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the, one of the worries in the midst of this pandemic, is that efforts that were already underway for resistance or for social change within Indigenous communities across Turtle Island? So, we're talking the US and Canada in particular, that those efforts will go away or will be diminished. And so, if we're talking about things like pipeline protests and anti mascot protests and um, MMIW girls and trans folk protests, those kinds of things. There was such momentum coming from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's reports up in Canada, of course, but also in the U.S. Um, I don't know more in other groups who are really picking up steam in this election year in the United States for Indigenous rights. Um, such good, Such good headway. There was a lot of velocity for these movements. And now, of course, we have a global pandemic. And of course, you know, issues that aren't seen as, quote, essential to a pandemic problem are marginalized even further and are pushed to the side. So one of the worries is that those efforts that have already been gaining or had already been gaining so much momentum are going to fizzle away. And I think to an extent we're seeing that. We're not seeing as many protests. We're not seeing as many um, efforts for social change as we did before March of 2020. So there is the concern there. But what we now see with a lot of Indigenous groups, um, as I've been attempting to get my department in shape and, and keep my university working as a small part as a department chair. But what I've been, what I've been noticing is that we're seeing anti-colonial protests within the context of health, within the context of public health, tied to larger issues, larger historical issues of things like pandemic and epidemic um, and indigenous folks in, in Canada and the United States, of course, have faced decades, if not centuries and centuries of, um, colonial, colonial health difficulties, um, including things like smallpox genocide, uh, both in the United States and in Canada, things like sterilization campaigns, um, diseases on reserves and reservations, right? Uh, these sort of comorbidity issues that we talk a bit about quite a bit, those have been historically linked to reservations in large numbers, residential schools, um, And in the U.S. and in Canada, the ways in which disease is allowed or was allowed to run rampant without a lot of check and the Spanish flu wiping out scores of native Alaskan villages with absolutely no aid whatsoever. Um, Same thing happening during the H1N1, where there was about a 300 percent more chance of being or contracting H1N1 if you were an indigenous person in the United States. So at any rate, we're seeing a lot of protests or a lot of not protests proper but we're seeing a lot of activism surrounding how do we get resources to indigenous nations, to indigenous peoples uh, on both sides. I think the United States is doing a worse job than Canada is not just in the amount of money being afforded, but in the speed of that money getting to health campaigns on reserves and um, in indigenous communities.
0: And the Navajo nation has, uh, um, has been in the news, um, a bit lately as well. Um, they've been particularly hard hit there.
1: Absolutely. And that's sort of, uh, that's kind of the, what you might call the flag individual or flag event. And that's typically, there's one extreme example, or there's one really poignant example during social change that a larger social change community points to as how can this happen and this is; these are the ends to which this problem will reach if we don't stop it now with the means we have at our disposal. And in and in this case, in this context of COVID nineteen, it's the Navajo Nation that's being honestly, it's being decimated. They have more cases than eight of their neighboring states. Many of those states never had a stay at home order. So consider that. Yeah. Uh, that so these are states that should have higher numbers per capita than other states, and they do. And yet those eight states that neighbor the Navajo Nation are in much better shape. And other SES issues, socially economic um, status issues, such as uh, bald-faced poverty, right, where 30% Mm -hmm. of the Navajo Nation live in poverty. Those who are not living in poverty are making 60 cents on the dollar to a typical American. And they're 19 times more likely to not have clean water and plumbing so when, when we talk about people sheltering at home and keeping hygiene at the forefront of their minds and of their families' well-beings, those kinds of things, it's sometimes complicated, if not all the time complicated on reservations in the U.S., uh, keeping people sheltered in place, really, really difficult. And it's tied, again, intersectionally, it's tied to class and to race.
0: There have been a couple of incidents in Canada. One, is, one was with I think it was the the Haida Gwaii in B.C. Um, turning back ferry the, the the ferry because people would like people were coming, white people were coming, thinking like oh I'm just going to go camp in the woods or do whatever and kind of flee this whole idea of fleeing the pandemic, right? And they were just stopping people from and sending them trying to send them straight back to where they came from to protect their community because the community was is, like these communities are so under-resourced to begin with that they can't handle people coming in and getting sick.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that um, if we look at the media representation and the media coverage of this but also the way that politicians talk about about this particular issue of protectionism of one's territory, one's sovereign land, if you will. We see we see words such as hostile or rogue being appended to indigenous nations who are turning back those ferries, turning back those boats, or preventing cars from driving through a reservation. But now when white folks on the coast of Massachusetts do the same thing, it's a protection of property, right? Mm. Um, it's their civic duty to keep their communities healthy. There are vastly different ways in which indigenous folks are framed while doing the same things that white folks are doing. And then the ways that white folks are framed are vastly more positive. It's more Mm -hmm. like they're protecting their liberty if they're white and preventing ferries from coming over to Cape Cod or islands off the coast of like Long Island, right? Where Mm -hmm. there were a number of folks in Manhattan who wanted to get out to their summer homes or wanted to get out to resorts or what have you in the Hamptons and people turn those boats away, turn those ferries away. That's a protection. That's a right. That's Um, That's part of your liberty to keep people out. But when it comes to indigenous folks, it's seen as hostile, Uh, you know, other disparaging verbs and nouns, you know, that historically have been thrown around. And it's, it's a shame it but, you know, the hypocrisy is always, even though bold, and overt is sometimes covered up so much. And so when people say, why are Native folks, why are Indigenous folks still fighting for these things? Don't they have casinos? Don't they have federal funding? Don't they have dual citizenship if they're in a U.S. state and a member of a registered uh, tribe? You know, don't they have all these things? What do they need? What more do they need? Well, look at the ways in which they can't even protect themselves, their communities in a time of pandemic without mm-hmm. larger colonial structures coming down on them. It's, yeah. um, you know, getting back to the question about what does protest look like or what's happened? I think that's what we're seeing. We're seeing more of that anti-decolonial activism about this particular health issue. The health issue, in other words, has opened up even more the can of coloniality that mm-hmm. was being worked was being worked on before the pandemic. It exposes those those um, creases and cleavages and rips even more.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really showing the holes in our society, and our society looks more like a colander than than anything else. Like. Um, I, I, know I've, I've seen conversations on, on Twitter, like, you know, they've been saying, you know, we can't do anything about homelessness. And now suddenly, yes, we will put homeless people in hotel rooms, like, or find, find places for them to live. Like how there's suddenly, there, there's sudden, suddenly this urgency that kind of shows that, well, maybe it wasn't that it was impossible. Maybe it was, we just didn't want to do it.
1: That's right. That's right. And the key here, I think for activists moving forward whether indigenous or non-indigenous, really, regardless of one subject position or issue that folks are are activists around, is to keep that momentum going because cultural amnesia is a real thing in the Western world, and particularly in the u s and in Canada. Mm-hmm. And people will quickly people will quickly forget once they're safe and they can go to their Starbucks and they can go to Whole Foods or they can go to Trader Joe's or wherever, right? They're going to forget about what we've been through, especially if it's not their narrative, right? Yeah. And so reminding, reminding the larger cultures of, hey, remember when we said we couldn't do it, but then we had to do it because there was an emergency and we said we would never let it happen again, but now we're at the mall and we're having an orange Julius, so we don't care anymore. Like, Mm -hmm. let's, let's go back to that moment of emergency and remember how we were able to do it. And how much better we could be if there is another pandemic. And even regardless of that, how much better human beings we could be as a result of this emergency. And I think that will be one of the um, one of the sort of watch words or watch topics moving out of this.
2: Thank you for listening to Forward. Find our footnotes, links to more information, and past episodes on our website, brocku.ca slash humanities. We love to hear from our listeners, so please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Brock Humanities. Please subscribe and write us on your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Allison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is by Serena Atella, and theme music is by Kaladam. The credits have been read by me, Serena Atella. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for Studio and Web Support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.